early. I was very, very disappointed. I really expected when I got up at 4.30 this morning, my beautiful wife would get up with me and share the morning. Yeah, she's not even apologetic about it. Um, we, but we've had great, each worship service has its own flavor, and that's a gift. And, and fun things happen throughout the morning. Uh, this morning at, before the sunrise service, yeah, we've never had this. We had bats buzzing the sunrise service. They were buzzing underneath. That, I've been here six years, and I've never seen bats out there. And they, I mean, it was like we were ducking. It was crazy. And I, I've, I've challenged, I was trying to think of the theological significance of bats. I can't come up with it yet. Some people have offered me suggestions. And um, then there's fun stuff, things that we can have a laugh at. I wasn't sure I was going to point this out, but I think I will. Um, to you this morning. When I went to Israel years ago, many years ago now, uh, we read articles um, that, in preparation that talked about various phenomenons that will happen when people go to Israel. And occasionally, this is rare, but occasionally there's a thing that's seriously, I'm not making this up, it's called a Messiah complex, where people will go to Israel and they'll kind of get so overwhelmed in the experience that they think that they're the Messiah. And they'll start acting as if they're Jesus. It's a very strange phenomenon, but it does happen. And there are these articles about it. And the reason I share this with you is I want to assure you that I do not have a Messiah complex. <laughs> now, if you're thinking, why would he bring this up? What does this have? If you have your bulletins, grab your bulletins. And look at the 815 order of worship. You have a bullet. I'll explain this if you don't have one. But at the 815 worship of, order of worship, I want you to pay special attention to the offertory song that the choir sang. Are you catching it? If you don't have a bulletin, it says, Hallelujah, Chris is risen. I want you to know I did not do that. I did proofread the bulletin and miss it, though. So um, anyway, that, um, that has nothing to do with anything, but I thought it was funny, so we'd share. But it was, I was kind of hallelujah that I got out of bed this morning, so maybe there's... Um, all right, the, for, for the Scripture, for, for our time of, of intentional reflection this morning on this Easter Sunday, I'm going to read from the Gospel of John. It is a resurrection story that we find in chapter 11, but it's not the resurrection story that we normally hear on Easter Sunday. Most often on days like this, the pastor, myself, will read from one of the gospel accounts of the resurrection of Jesus. But this is not that story. This is not Jesus' own resurrection, but rather it's the resurrection power that he speaks into the life of Lazarus. So I'm going to read from select verses. It says 1 through 44 on the screens. I'm not going to read the entire chapter, but I'm going to read some of the verses, and then we're going to spend some time um, going deeper into this story this morning. So we begin at John chapter 11, verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, a village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard this, or when he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. 
So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to the disciples, let's go back to Judea. Now moving to verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Now to verse 38. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is bad odor, and he has been in there for four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave cloths and let him go. Brothers and sisters, we pray God's blessing here on the reading of his word. Let us pray. Lord, anoint this reading, anoint our hearts and our spirits to receive your word. And I pray these words spoken are from you that your Holy Spirit would guide and direct not only what is said, but what is received in our hearts, that we would grow close to the one who is the resurrection and the life. For it is in his name we pray. Amen. I am the resurrection and the life. One of seven I am sayings that are found in the Gospels of John. One of seven times that Jesus does this, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the bread of life, I am the gate, I am the light of the world, I am the vine and you are the branches. And in the next four weeks, we're going to spend some time looking at four of these I am sayings of Jesus that speak to his character, his nature, his gift, who he is. But as you would expect, on Easter Sunday, we start with this, I am the resurrection and the life. A resurrection is exactly what we understand it to be. It is that moment in which something that was dead becomes alive again. And we understand it as part of the bedrock of our faith, the promise that we have in Christ that one day the dead will be made alive again, that, that we will live into that promise that Jesus spoke, in my Father's house are many rooms, I go to prepare a place for you so that where I, be, where I am you will be also. The idea that when we pass from this life, we pass into life eternal. Resurrection. We believe it. We embrace it. It's part of the foundation of our faith. But we don't normally expect to see it. And what I mean by that is we don't expect to see it in a physical reality. You don't expect to see it in a physical reality. In fact, I guarantee you, how many of you have ever been to a cemetery and seen a, a grave that's been dug? A fresh, open grave. Anybody ever seen a fresh, open? Okay. How many of you instantly turned to somebody and said, look, somebody came back from the dead? 
No, that's not what you think. That's not what you expect. That's not what you want to see. I guarantee you don't want to see that. In fact, I've, I've said before, the first sunrise service, Easter sermon I ever preached in North Carolina was in a cemetery. It was in a cemetery at Mount Sylvan United Methodist Church on a morning after a hard freeze. It was cold. And we were out there and we were worshiping. And I said, we don't expect to see anybody come out of these graves. And if they did, we would run like scared rabbits. <laughs> Nobody would stick around to see it. We don't expect that. But that's what Jesus does here. And that's part of the promise of resurrection is that physical, that real resurrection of the dead, that promise that we have life in this life and we have life that is to come. The problem is, the danger, not the problem, the danger is that too often with our faith, with these stories, we narrow that definition of life to simply a promise of what is to come. We hear Jesus say on the resurrection of life, and we think of that in terms of the promise we one day will receive when we pass from life that is temporary to life that is eternal. And the danger there is it is too narrow an understanding of what Jesus offers. It's too narrow a reading of the promise that Jesus gives. Because while we see that in this story of Lazarus, while we see a physical resurrection of one who is dead that comes forth again, that shows us the power over death that Jesus has, the same power that would bring him from the grave on the first Easter Sunday, there's embedded with the story characters that we need to pay attention to because they speak to a greater understanding of what life means, what life looks like, what Jesus promises. And so what happens is we read this story and we focus on Jesus and we focus on Lazarus, but too easily we miss that there are three other characters that get introduced in the narrative that speak to us in the here and now, not just in the, the by and by, in the moment of which we're in, not only into what we expect one day to experience and receive. And so we read ourselves into the story. That's the gift of the scriptures. The scriptures are not just history. It's not just about what was. Jesus, or God gives us his word because in it we find ourselves. And I think as we look a little deeper at this story, somewhere you will be able to find yourself in the story as we look at these individual characters that get introduced to us. Now, let's, let's set the story up again. Let's kind of backtrack a little bit. Jesus is, is doing what Jesus does. He's preaching. He's speaking. He's healing. He's teaching. And all of a sudden, at the very, very beginning of chapter 11, he gets word. And this is the word he gets in verse 3. Lord, the one you love is sick. I want you to stop just for a moment. Let those words sink in. Lord, the one you love is sick. See, here's the danger of, of hearing these familiar stories is we kind of move through the details very quick because we know how it ends. We're not worried about Lazarus because we know how it ends. But don't go there too fast. Allow the power of the very, very beginning. Lord, the one you love is sick. That is the moment into a good life that bad news breaks in. And here's why that's important. I believe every one of us here knows what it's like in the midst of a good life to get bad news. I believe every one of us here can think of a moment in our lives when we have been steamrolled with words like that. The one you love is sick. Maybe it's you. Maybe it's a spouse, child, a parent. The one you love 
is sick. And maybe it's not physical illness. Maybe it's the news that, that a marriage is falling apart. Maybe it's news um, that friendships are, are falling apart. Maybe it's news that, that your job has, your, your company's been downsized and your job's being eliminated. Maybe it's a phone call from the principal at school and it's not to tell you your son or daughter is on the honor roll. Lord, the one you love is sick. It's those moments in our lives when darkness breaks in. It's those moments of lives when, when the storm clouds come and, and the, the sun gets pushed behind the gray. And we begin to hear those kind of words. The one you love is sick. That's what Jesus hears. The one he loved is sick. And immediately he recognizes an opportunity. Immediately he recognizes that God is providing an opportunity for his power to be made manifest. And he even says so much. He says right there at the very next verse, he said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that the Son may be glorified through it. So he says, yes, this is not good news. This is a tragic event. The one not only that I love is sick but is dying, but God's doing something here. And what is very, very interesting is the next thing that he does. I want you to think for a moment. If you got news that somebody you love, somebody that was important to you, somebody close to you, was ill or hurting or in need, what would be your first reaction? Go. Get there as fast as you can. Yesterday, Tony and I were sitting in the office at home. Uh, we'd been up. The kids were still sleeping. We were in there talking. And the, the house phone rang. Now, we never answer the house phone. We never answer it because the only people that use that number are solicitors and people trying to sell stuff. You know, we have, like most people, we have cell phones, and anybody who usually needs to reach me has that cell phone. So rarely, I shouldn't say never, but rarely do we answer the house phone. But I looked at it, and I said to Tony, I said, it's an 813, and I read out the number. And she said, get it, it's Dad. And it was her father's cell phone that was calling. It was actually her sister that was calling. We had left both our cell phones in the back room so they weren't with us. And she was calling to tell Tony that her father, or their father, my father-in-law, had fallen and they were afraid he'd broken his leg. Now, as I'm hearing the conversation, I can see the wheels turning in Tony's mind. How do I get home? Need to go home. It wasn't... Um, life-threatening, but it was serious, or it could have been serious. It was because that's our instinct. We need to get home. Now, just to kind of let you know, he actually didn't break his leg. The good news is it was just some bad muscle pulls, which will take some healing, but not a break, and so we're thankful for that. But my point is that's our, our reaction. When somebody we love is in need, how do we get to them? Now, here's what Jesus does. He hears that, and for two days he sticks exactly where he is. It says, in fact, it's, it's such a weird way that it says it. He said, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. We'd, when he heard Lazarus was sick, we expect he got moving. But he stayed two more days before he finally begins the journey to Bethany. And it is on that journey that we encounter the three characters I want to spend a few moments on this morning. The first is Thomas. The first is Thomas. Now, what do we know Thomas for? Doubting, exactly. Thomas is doubting Thomas, and he lives into that reputation right here. In fact, um, Didymus is the word, for, is the name of Thomas. It means the twin. And what happened was when Jesus says we're going to go to Bethany, the disciples collectively kind of say, that's a bad idea, Jesus. Let's not do that. And here's why. The last time you were there, they tried to kill you. 
Now, most of us know that if there's some place that somebody's going to try to kill us, we're not going to go there. But Jesus knew there was a purpose, there was a plan, there was a hope. And so he says that, that we're going to go because this is going to happen so that you may believe, that you may see the power of God. In fact, he says we're going to go because Lazarus has fallen asleep. We need to go wake him up. And obviously that's a metaphor. He knows Lazarus is dead. But it is into this that Thomas speaks up. And this is what Thomas says in verse 16. He says to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now that sounds like a bold statement of faith. That sounds like a brave statement of faith, except we know that Thomas and the rest of the disciples aren't that brave. They would show that in Holy Week. They're not that brave. Thomas isn't making a bold declaration of faith. He's being sarcastic. He is absolutely being sarcastic. He's not saying, let us go with him that we may die. He's saying, oh, let's go with him. We might as well die too. You know, this is not going to end well. I know what Jesus has said. I know what Jesus thinks is going to happen, but that's not the way this is going to go. And so if he's going to walk in the lion's den, we might as well walk in with him. And what he's showing is that he not yet has developed a faith that trusts in what Jesus tells him. He's dying. See, what we're doing is we're, we're going to get a character study of three people that are dying, but not physically. They're dying inside. They're dying spiritually. And Thomas is dying in his doubt. And it would linger for a while. He's dying in his doubt. Now, here's my question. How many of you, in your faith, wherever that may be, have never doubted? Have never doubted? If you have never doubted, then you feel free to tune me out right now. You polish your halo, and the rest of us are going to talk for a minute. Because doubt's an experience of faith. It is a part of faith. I believe it wholeheartedly. It's a part of faith. It can be dangerous when it takes hold, though, of our spirit. But who hasn't had moments when you've started to question or wonder or had your faith undercut or undermined a little bit? For me, it was when I went to college. And all of a sudden, I sat in classes with um, learned individuals with letters by their names and diplomas on the wall. And some began to say, you know, those stories of faith are just myth. They're not real. They're not true. They're, they're, They're just... It's just mythology like any other story. And it began to undercut and began to erode and at least shake the foundations of my faith. Or maybe for you it was that moment when that news came and somebody you loved is sick or you're sick or Ellen, you wonder where God is. How could God let this happen? Or maybe it's any day that you turn on the news and you see the loss and the destruction and the death and the turmoil and the hatred and the anger and all the ugliness in the world. And you think, how can God let this happen? And our faith begins to shake a little bit. And if we're honest, we become like Thomas. We begin, if we're not careful, if we're not rooted in Christ, we begin to die in our doubt. That's where Thomas is. Then Jesus goes on further to Bethany. And we are reintroduced to Mary. And Mary is dying as well. But Mary's dying in her despair. Mary's dying in her despair. And you think, well, how do you know that? Well, it's not in what she says, but it's in what she does. I want you to hear again verse 20. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Now, that seems pretty insignificant until you remember what we know about Mary. 
We get introduced to Mary and Martha in the Gospel of Luke, the 10th chapter. You may remember that story. Jesus goes to the home to have dinner of Lazarus, of Mary and Martha. Now, you remember, what was Martha doing? What was Martha doing? You remember? She was cooking. She was cleaning. She was, ma- she was playing the host. And you remember, she gets angry with her sister Mary. Why does she get angry with Mary? That's right. Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. Mary couldn't get enough time with Jesus. She didn't want to do anything that kept her away from Jesus. She wanted to be with him every second, every moment, every opportunity she had. Now, John chapter 11, Jesus is at the gate of the village. Martha goes to meet him, and Mary stays home. She's breaking inside. She is suffering in her despair, and despair has a way of paralyzing us. You know this. It has a way of shrinking us back. We don't want to move. You don't want to be. You don't want to go because life is caving in on you. That's where Mary is. That's where some of you have been and maybe today where some of you are. Because life doesn't always work out the way that we want it to, and we know that. Marriages don't always work out the way we want it to. Friendships don't always work out the way that we want it to. Relationships and opportunities and jobs don't always work out the way that we want it to. And we find ourselves thinking, it's never going to get any better. This is my lot. I'm stuck here. No opportunity, no potential, no promise. And when we do, despair begins to sink in. And we kind of curl in on ourselves sometimes in that it could be physically and it can be spiritually but that proverbial fetal position that's that's where mary is she is stuck in that darkness of her despair she's dying there thomas is dying in his doubt mary's dying in her despair and then there's martha martha's who i most identify with because she's dying too but she's dying in her disappointment in her frustration in her anger with jesus in fact, it's hard. You've got to read into it. But I don't think that when Jesus came up that she says, Jesus, and this is verse 21, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. See, I kind of read it that way, but I don't think that's the way she said it. I don't believe so. I think there was a little more force in that. I think it was Jesus, if you had been here, if you had shown up when we asked you to, when we needed to, as we wanted you to, this would not have happened. We've seen what you can do. Where were you? Where were you? And she's dying in that anger and that frustration and that disappointment with God. Why weren't you here? I can identify with Martha because I know what it's like in my life to have moments when you shake your fist at God and you wonder, why are things happening this way? Where are you? We've prayed and we've, we've waited and we've been diligent and you're not acting. Where are you, Jesus? Where are you, Jesus? And part of the mistake that I make, and sometimes the mistake you may make, is that I sometimes assume that God's delay is his denial. That his delay is his denial. Because, you know, sometimes prayers go unanswered for such a long time. Some of you here have been praying for children who are in tough situations and have made tough choices. And you've prayed and you've prayed and you wonder, where's the fruit of the prayers? Where's life changing? Or any number of situations that we've already talked about. God's presence isn't always a promise that he's going to deliver on our needs, on our demands. But, but we find ourselves sometimes, if we're honest, dying a little in our disappointment, in our frustrations with God. That's what happens. Three people, Thomas, Mary, and Martha, all are dying in some way. And it's interesting that Jesus says 
in verse 41 at the end, or verse 42, he says in his prayer, he says, I know that you always hear me, Lord. I know that you always hear me. But I am thankful that I get to say this for the benefit of those who are standing around me. He prays out loud and he says, this isn't because I know you don't hear me, Lord, but this is the benefit, this is for the benefit of those who are standing around. And I think maybe very specifically in Jesus' mind, he was thinking about the hurt and the heartbreak of Thomas and of Mary and Martha. In fact, a few verses earlier, it says, you remember the shortest scripture, the shortest verse in the Bible is that Jesus wept. He wept. You ever thought about that? He weeps outside the tomb of Lazarus. Why? He knows he's about to resurrect Lazarus. Why the tears? He's not weeping for Lazarus, but he weeps because he feels the heartbreak of those around him. It is a moment in which we see the one who is the healer of our pain becomes also the feeler of our pain. You hear that? The one who's not just the healer of our pain becomes the feeler of our pain. Jesus wept. But in the midst of that, something happens. Something changes. In fact, it's very interesting that in my Bible, on page 978, is John chapter, most of John chapter 11. And on page 978 is when all the bad stuff happens. It's when Lazarus dies, and Thomas doubts, and Mary despairs, and Martha disappoint, is disappointed. All that stuff happens on page 978. But when you flip the page, one page, things change. And into doubt and despair and disappointment, Jesus speaks. And Martha says something in verse 21. She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I read that a moment ago, but verse 22. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. What happens between 978 and 979? An even now moment. An even now moment. I don't know how much Martha believed it, but she said it. She knew that there was no point in which Jesus was incapable of acting. She knew that even in the midst of all this darkness that everyone was feeling, even now Jesus could act. And here's what you need to hear and I need to hear this morning. That I am the resurrection and the life is the promise that there is no point in which we are beyond an even now moment. There is no point in your life, in your walk with Christ, in your relationships, in your challenges, in your difficulties, in your joys or your sorrows, that you are beyond an even now moment in which God can speak into your life through Jesus. And Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Now understand, he's not saying I have the power of resurrection and life. I can make resurrection and life. He says, I am. Jesus is not inviting Martha to an event, nor is he inviting us to an event. Resurrection is not an event. It's a person. And that person is Jesus. He's inviting Martha into a relationship in which his power begins to have dominion even over the darkness that she's feeling in her life. We are invited into a relationship with Jesus. Right now, life might be as good as it can be, and I thank God for you if that's your story. But I know many of us here right now are feeling the darkness. It may be we feel like the tomb is about closed and that stone is about rolled over that opening, or maybe we're just feeling some of that light slip away. But we know what it's like to feel the darkness, and Jesus invites us in those moments to an even now faith that knows that into those places Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, yet shall they live. And those who live and believe in me shall never die. He is saying that faith in me isn't a what will happen. It is a what is happening faith. It's a promise of his presence in the midst of those moments 
of his strength in the midst of those moments, his light in the midst of that darkness. We need to not make the mistake of making resurrection faith about something that is limited to only what will be, but we recognize it is a promise of what is. Holy Week is a week of darkness. I mean, it is a week of impending darkness. When the sun goes down on Thursday night, I believe in many sense those disciples didn't see the light until Easter morning. The darkness of Monday, Thursday, the darkness of Good Friday, the darkness of Holy Saturday. But Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And on Easter morning, darkness gives way to light. Death gives way to life. Defeat gives way to victory. That's the promise of faith. And what it says to us is there's no moment in your life, no place in your life, no experience in your life when you are too far beyond an even now moment, when God cannot and will not act in your life. It is not a promise that everything's going to go your way. Don't hear that. Don't walk out of here going, the preacher said, if I believe in Jesus, life's never going to be tough. Okay? That ain't what I'm saying. And if you think that, you ain't been listening for very long. What I'm saying is it is the promise that even now Jesus can speak life and light into those moments to give you hope and strength and faith and promise. That's what we embrace. And he says what Jesus offers. He's not offering an event. He's offering himself. I am the resurrection and the life even now. Brothers and sisters, a lot of us need a moment where our page turns, where our page turns even now to experience the resurrection and the life. I hope that is your reality today. May God bless you with the promise of an Easter faith, which is for now and for always. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, thank you for the promise that we have in Christ and for the invitation that you give us. You are the resurrection and the life, that we'd receive it, believe it, claim it, and live it now and always in the power of the resurrected Savior at work in each of us. We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen.